Before we begin today's program, I wanted to share two pieces of Tin House related news. Tin House is now accepting applications for its 2021 online winter workshop, which will take place across the Martin Luther King holiday weekend this January, and which will feature short fiction, novel, poetry, and nonfiction classes. In addition to its general scholarships, Tin House will offer awards for those without an MFA, for writers over 40, for Black women, and those from the LGBTQIA and Indigenous communities. The application deadline is November 11th, and payment plans are available for both the application fee and tuition. Tin House is also now accepting applications for its 2021 online YA workshop, which will take place across President's Day weekend this February, and which will feature manuscript evaluations, crafts lectures, industry panels, and agent meetings. In addition to its general scholarships, Tin House will offer awards for writers of color, parents, and those who identify as LGBTQIA. The application deadline is November 15th, and payment plans are available for both the application fee and tuition. So again, the deadline for the online winter workshop in all three genres is November 11th, and for the online YA workshop is November 15th, and more information can be found about both at tinhouse.com. It is impossible for me to not think of the most recent conversations on Between the Covers in conversation themselves with the dilated moment we are in heading into Tuesday's election. The conversation with Jenny Erpenbeck about, among many other things, the notion of an us and a them, about borders and property, an interrogation of the idea of a nation or nation state as a way to identify, about the absence of and the need to revive solidarity across borders, irrespective of nation, about national memory and historical reckoning and its promises and limitations. And with Natalie Diaz, about living, loving, and making art under occupation. About the fine line between participation and complicity. About love as an act against the colonial state. About ways of relating and loving that allow for what we don't know. What we can't possibly know of the other, even a lover. And today's guest, Ed Akhtar, makes that resonance between this political moment and the questions that animate his book impossible to ignore. Questions of what the American mythos really is if it isn't freedom and opportunity. Of the disappearing sense of a collective and our responsibility to one. Questions of immigration and belonging and of what costs, what costs to one's sense of self, are too high to pay in order to try to belong. All of these inquiries have been set in his latest book, Homeland Elegies, in the days leading up to and just after the 2016 Trump election, as Akhtar's book asks, if Trump is the symptom, 
what is the disease? Because of this, I'm excited to air my conversation with Ayad at an analogous time, just before the 2020 election. If that isn't enough drama, to dial us down from the macro to the micro, yesterday was my final day of my job of 22 years. And today is the first of this occupation, this preoccupation of mine, being the main thing, the central thing for me. But really I can't say, quote unquote, for me, because I think of these themes of late, the ones of recent guests, of the collective versus the individual, and how really now I'm here doing this going forward because of you. Just like you are listening, at least in part, because of me. That really, across whatever divide this is happening, the existence of this is utterly relational. Longtime listeners know that because of this big pandemic-caused shift in my life, that we are in the middle of an end-of-the-year fundraising push for Between the Covers to boost the percentage of listeners who are supporters from between 1% and 2% to between 2 and 3 And speaking of solidarity, many past guests have offered things to make this possible. In addition to all of the usual Tin House swag available, the Tin House early readership subscription, the featured Tin House new release, Ursula K. Le Guin conversations on writing, and the ever-growing bonus audio archive, to which Ayad Akhtar adds a reading from theater director and theorist Yerzy Grotowski's last piece of writing called Performer, about the marriage he makes between ancient performance techniques and the Western psychoanalytic tradition. Beyond these potential enticements, and the recently added ones, including writerly consultations with Sheila Hetty, Vicky Now, and Aro Kwan, this week we've added signed books by Karen Russell, an offer from Joe Sacco, one of the world's premier comics journalists, to receive a hand-drawn postcard from him. And we've put together two bundles of beautiful poetry broadsides and books by Forrest Gander. So if you're a longtime listener who hasn't yet joined the dynamic community of listener supporters, a community who are in part responsible for some of the guests coming up on the show because of our discussions together, or you are a new listener who appreciates what you've heard recently, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers and consider transforming yourself from a listener to a listener supporter by joining the Between the Covers community. Enjoy today's program with Ayad Akhtar. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. 
was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Today's guest is playwright, screenwriter, actor, and novelist Ayad Akhtar. Ayad Akhtar attended Brown University, where he studied both theater and religion, moved to Italy to study and work under Polish theater director and theorist Jerzy Grotowski, and then returned to the United States, teaching acting alongside Andre Gregory and earning an MFA in film directing from Columbia University. In 2005, he wrote and starred in the film The War Within, which was nominated for an Independent Spirit Award for Best Screenplay. In 2012, Ayad Akhtar published his first novel, American Dervish, about a Pakistani-American boy growing up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which was translated into over 20 languages and was a Kirkus Review's Best Book of the Year. And Akhtar's narration of the audiobook was nominated for a 2013 Audi Award. Akhtar's first play, Disgraced, which tackled Islamophobia, 9-11, and Muslim-American identity, proved to be provocative, deeply controversial, wildly popular, and critically acclaimed. Disgraced was nominated for the Tony Award for Best Play, won an Obie Award, and ultimately won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. It was the most produced play in the United States in the 2015-2016 season. His subsequent plays include The Who and the What about identity, religion, and art making, The Invisible Hand about both capitalism and terrorism, and Junk, The Golden Age of Debt, of which Bill Moyers in his final interview described as not only history, but prophecy, a biblical-like account of who's running America and how. In 2017, Akhtar won the Steinberg Playwright Award and his acceptance speech at the Lincoln Center Theater, later published in the New York Times, championed the importance of live theater before a live audience. This year, Ayad Akhtar takes over from Jennifer Egan as president of PEN America, the nonprofit organization that defends free expression through the advancement of literature and human rights. Ayad Akhtar is here today on Between the Covers to talk about his second much-anticipated novel, just out from Little Brown, called Homeland Elegies. With starred reviews from Publishers Weekly, Kirkus, and Library Journal, Salman Rushdie says of Homeland Elegies, an unflinchingly honest self-portrait by a brilliant Muslim-American writer, and beyond that, an unsparing examination of both sides of that fraught, hyphenated reality. Passionate, disturbing, unputdownable. Dwight Garner for the New York Times calls it a lover's quarrel with America. Ron Charles for the Washington Post calls it a tour de force, a poetic confession of the agony of trying to articulate a nuanced critique of faith and politics in an age of shrieking partisanship. Jennifer Egan says, at the core of this flashing kinetic coil of a story, part 1001 Nights, part reality TV, is a passionate, wrenching portrayal of Americans exiled into otherness. And finally, A.M. Holmes says, 
an urgent, intimate hybrid of memoir and fiction, Homeland Elegies lays bare the broken heart of our American dream turned reality TV nightmare. It brilliantly captures how we got to this exact moment in time and at what cost. Stunning. Welcome to Between the Covers, Ayad Akhtar. Thank you, David. Quite, a, quite an introduction. I had to sort of remember all those things that, I, that I've been through. I mean, it's really, wow, I, I tend to forget. So Yeah, no, <laughs> it's quite an amazing journey. We are having this conversation less than two weeks before the election, yeah. which feels fitting because you set Homeland Elegies just before the election of 2016, back when Trump winning didn't seem entirely believable. Right. And I kind of wanted to start with this question of believability. Your book could be considered autofiction, a book that intentionally holds us in the in the tension between autobiography and fiction. It is a novel, but the protagonist is named Ayad Akhtar, and many of the book's most basic details are verifiably true things about you and the world that your parents met in Pakistan in the 60s and immigrated to the United States, settling in Wisconsin that your dad becomes a high-profile medical expert on heart arrhythmias with many celebrities as his patients because of this, that your first performed play invites controversy within the Muslim community, a Muslim-American community, but also is unbelievably successful, opening previously unimaginable doors for you because of it. But my questions around believability do not really center around trying to verify what we can't verify in the story, most notably whether uh, your father was the cardiologist for Trump in the 1990s and thus a Trump supporter in 2016. But I did want to ask you about a way you're using autofiction that seems unique to me, namely that unlike Philip Roth, who throughout his career sort of toyed with the reader's desire to conflate his real life with his characters' lives, which is something you also do here, it feels like you're sort of doing it to a different end in that the form mirrors the way both fake news and performance have become a very real thing and how the real has collapsed into the fantastical, all of which is embodied in, in the living caricature, caricature that is our president. So there's a way in which it feels like this autofictional move evokes and even maybe enacts a Trumpian move in order to maybe embody it and then um, examine it from the inside. And I, I didn't know how that felt to you, but I, I wanted to hear you talk about this moment we're in now, the moment yeah. from four years ago, and then the way the fake and the real or the performed and the entertaining and shared reality um, out in the world are intersecting with each other. Thank you for that question. And thank you for having me on this, uh, on this podcast, David. Um, yeah, I mean, such a beautifully articulated and, and nuanced version of that question, I, which I get, of course, the the vulgarization, the vulgar version of that is, is do you have a half-sister sired by a hooker in Queens? You know, so, <laughs> right. Or do you <laughs> have syphilis? That. Yeah, that's right. Or do, did you actually have syphilis? Are you still, do you still have an active case of syphilis? Um, <laughs> you know, I think that, that uh, it, it would be hard to sort of like comment on what you just said and sort of do better. So let me just let me just kind of meet you in in sort of unpack some of the things that you that you suggested. You know, I think that Trump is, of course, a kind of spiritual muse for the book. Um, but but in a way, I I think that putting it that way sort of puts the cart before the horse because 
I think perhaps, and this would be my proposition, that Trump is a reflection of a certain modality, a certain late stage evolution or devolution of the entertainment model of politics and the entertainment model of, of thought itself. And, and there is a cognitive corollary to this entertainment model of reality. That core cognitive corollary, a kind of diminished or shallowed attention span, an ability to focus in very, very discreet and, and, and precise and heightened ways on, 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 on pieces of information moving through a stream with a kind of you know, uh, high wattage concentration, but that is unable to sort of sustain moment to moment on a particular thing. Um, the inability to need, have any need to brook contradiction because contradiction sits side by side in you know, photo after photo. So there's no need for the cognitive capacity to hold those things together. So there's a, I think there's a, there is a cognitive corollary to where we are and which Trump is really the result of, that, that Trump is our president in part because we have become these people. Now, of course, the fact that Trump now plays to all of these things has only made us those people even more so, right? So I think that in a way, by calling Trump a spiritual muse of the book, which I've done on a couple of occasions, um, it's really, as I said, putting the cart before the horse, because in reality, what I was trying to do was I was trying to reach the reader, the reader being myself, to whom all of these assaults, the, the assault of advertising, of social media, of all of this, has done something to my concentration. And I wanted to reclaim that vivid present, and I wanted to find a way to do so to a reader today without asking them to change, without asking them to stop being addicted to the breaking news notification or the absorption in the Instagram scroll. And thereby, if I could breach that sanctum sanctorum of contemporary attention, that we could then together have a meaningful, productive, and perhaps even deep conversation about our politics. So I was using the form, if you will, not to critique it, in part to mirror it for sure, but ultimately to find a way to reach the reader more deeply. Well, speaking of reaching the reader, I wanted to ask one more question around form and around voice and sort of vantage point. We have a lot of writers come on the show who are writing hybrid works or cross-genre works sometimes to capture impossible to capture moments by using these hybrid forms, but also often to capture irresolvable contradictions of a hyphenated identity. And in the light of that, I wanted to ask you um, a question about audience, because you could say that your book is cross genre, not just in terms of fiction and nonfiction, but also that it was inspired in certain respects by a poem and mm -hmm. a poem that addresses a nation and I yeah. and that suggests to me that this is a very different project than Disgraced, which you've described as something that you wrote with fellow Muslims as your intended audience. Mm -hmm. um, so talk to us about how the poem to Italy by Leopardi relates to Homeland Elegies and what that relationship tells us about who you are addressing. Well, it's interesting. Um, again, wow, thank you for that question. I... I I stumbled on Leopardi and I stumbled on his county when I was in Rome uh, early 2018, a year after Trump had been in office. And not incidentally, the first chapter of the book is called on the anniversary of 
Trump's first year in office. Um, and, you know, my mom had passed away and my, my father was, you know, in a state of pretty significant decline because of late stage alcoholism. Trump was now elected. I had been seeing a picture of the country for some time. I'd been trying to write about it, David. I'd been trying to write about what I was seeing and constantly found myself um, sequestered in the silo of, of identity politics writing, uh, misinterpreted or, or perhaps just dismissed because I was trying, I was assumed to be writing about the plight of marginalized Muslim Americans, which I often am, but never for that purpose. It's only my particular to write to some universal. And so I think there was a, there was a very rich emotional moment that I was going through in a kind of go, go I think I had felt my back was up against the wall as a writer that I had, I had accomplished so much in part by being so deeply misinterpreted and yet wildly praised and, and, and awarded, you know, by all these awards, often by people who didn't seem to have the first clue about what I was actually doing. And so I was, you know, this was, this was the state I was in. I had jet lag. <laughs> I found myself in the library at the American Academy late one night and I stumbled on the Leo party poem. It's called to Italy. And it's basically, a, you know, it's the beginning of his Conti series. Um, and he is addressing the Italian people and he's exhorting them to remember his, he's exhorting his fellow Italians to remember their great glories and, and how far they've fallen. Right. <laughs> to me, the parallels with our, my own American nation were so clear, right? And so I grandiosely wondered that evening if there would, was, was it possible for me to summon a voice that could address my fellow American citizens as atomized and fractured as this American collective has become? Could I assemble them, if you will, in a moment just by speaking in some high, lyric, serious, perhaps mournful tone about what had happened to America that I had been seeing for some time in some form, but that the shape that it was now taking was an even unexpected to somebody like myself who believes that he's a prognosticator or a Cassandra by, by profession. So I went to sleep that night and I, you know, again, as I said, ridiculously grandiose thought. But I woke up the next morning and the first sentence of this book was already forming itself. And it was interesting because I had gone to Rome to try to write a much simpler book about my dad's, you know, malpractice law inspired by my father's malpractice lawsuit, which figures in the book as well. Um, and I was going to write something very spare. And I've always been, you know, as a playwright, the discipline of dialogue forces spareness in economy. But something about this voice that was emerging in me was just, it was almost Baroque in its, in its richness and its paratactical, you know, uh, it's just sort of like conjunct, conjunctions and junction after junction, phrase after phrase after phrase and single sentences that went on for pages. So I, I just went with it. And, and, and what ended up happening was that it felt like I was trying, and, and Whitman was at the heart of, in a way, a kind of language to embody or embrace the American experience today, but not to the end of celebration, rather to the end of lament. Mm. Um, you know, and that's where the, the book was born and, and it unfolded really sequentially from that point forward. Could we hear a little bit of the overture? Oh, sure, of course, yeah. Context for this is just that my father, while a great champion of America and a great believer in America, 
knew, to, knew not to be too uh, vocal about it at home because my mother didn't feel quite the same way. My mother's views, however rarely voiced, should have prepared me to understand my teacher Mary's dyspeptic take on this country, but they didn't. Not even my Islam prepared me to see what Mary saw, not even after 9-11. I remember a letter from her in the months following that terrifying day in September that changed Muslim lives in America forever, a 10-page missive in which she encouraged me to take heart, to learn what I could from the trouble ahead, confiding that her struggles as a gay woman in this country, the sense of siege, the unceasing assaults on her quest for wholeness, the roughness of her route to autonomy and authenticity, that all these had been but fires beneath her crucible, provoking creative rage, tempering sentimentality, releasing her from hope in ideology. Use the difficulty, make it your own, was her admonition. Difficulty had been the flintstone against which her powers of analysis were sharpened, the how and why of what she saw, but which I still wouldn't truly see with my own eyes for 15 years to come, my deepening travails as a Muslim in this country notwithstanding. No, I wouldn't see what Mary saw until I'd been witness to the untimely decline of a generation of colleagues exhausted by the demands of jobs that never paid them enough, drowning in debt to care for children riddled with disorders that couldn't be cured and the cousins and the best friend from high school who ended up in shelters or on the street tossed out of houses they could no longer afford, or until the near dozen suicides and overdoses of 40-something childhood classmates in the mere space of three years, and the friends and family medicated for despair, anxiety, lack of affect, insomnia, sexual dysfunction, and the premature cancers brought on by the chemical shortcuts for everything from the food moving through our irritable bowels to the lotions applied to our sun-poisoned skins, I wouldn't see it until our private lives had consumed the public space, then been codified, foreclosed, and put up for auction, until the devices that enslave our minds had filled us with the toxic flotsam of a culture no longer worthy of the name, until the bright pliancy of human sentience, attention itself, had become the world's most prized commodity, the very movements of our minds transformed into streams of unceasing revenue for someone somewhere. I wouldn't see it clearly until the American self had fully mastered the plunder, idealized and legislated the splitting of the spoils, and brought to near completion the wholesale pillage, not only of the so-called colony, how provincial allocution that seems now, but also of the very world itself. In short, I wouldn't see what she saw back then until I'd failed at trying to see it otherwise, until I'd ceased believing in the lie of my own redemption until the suffering of others aroused in me a starker, clearer cry than any anthem to my own longing. I read Whitman first with Mary. I adored him. The green leaves and dry leaves, the spears of summer grass, the side-curved head, ever avid for what came next. My tongue, too, is homegrown. Every atom of this blood formed of this soil, this air. But these multitudes will not be my own, and these will be no songs of celebration. We've been listening to Ayad Akhtar read from his latest book, Homeland Elegies, a novel. So something that is true about both the real you and your fictional avatar is an interesting irony. One could say that the frame of the book is, or one frame of the book, is the arrival of your parents to America as immigrants until the ends of their lives, and the ways that no matter how hard they tried, and your father tries very hard, America never loves them the way he tries to love America. That trajectory in the book is one of disillusionment, but your dramatic arc, both in real life and in the book, is one where 
It is only when you stopped trying to write as if you belonged, only when your own American disillusionment became part of your writing, that you found yourself, in a sense, fulfilling the American dream. So <laughs> yeah, it's true. So I, yeah. So so I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about how you found your voice, and perhaps just as interesting to our audience, which includes many writers and artists, about the ways you wrote before you found it, since you've mm-hmm. said that your desire to become a writer at first became a desire to be someone other than who you are. I had an amazing high school teacher who changed my life when I was 15. Her name was Diane Durfler, and she taught world lit at Brookfield Central High School in uh, suburban Milwaukee. And um, she changed a lot of kids' lives. She was an aficionado of uh, modernism, Central European modernism, to be precise. Um, and I just, she opened my mind in, in, in a way that just, I don't know, shaped me fundamentally. She was, the, she was the first cause, if you will. And from the age of 15, I wanted to be a writer. But in part, what this meant was that I wanted to be the kind of writer that Diane Durfler loved. She taught herself to speak German, so that read German so she could read Rilke in the original. And she made me read Robert Musil um, while I was in high school, as well as Marcel Proust and mm. whatnot, right? So I had a very, um, I, if you will, kind of advanced training in comparative literature in <laughs> suburban Milwaukee by this extraordinary, this extraordinary high school teacher. Uh, but it, it kind of imprinted me with an anachronistic vision, a literary vision, if you will. And for a long time, I, I sought to write, uh, you know, I, I love that thing that Franzen wrote in, uh, in Harper's years and years ago. It was 20 years ago at this point, probably, the difference between contract writers and status writers, right? And this idea that, that, that a writer comes to the, the, the writing moment or the, the, the creative moment seeking to make a connection with a reader that is uh, about some contractual feeling of equality uh, versus the status writer who is someone who seeks to be separate from the reader. Uh, and I was seeking to be a status writer in the classic Central Europeanist, European modernist mode. This lasted quite a while, and I kept failing. I mean, I, I and, you know, uh, notably in my own life, I wrote a uh, you know, 600-page uh, novel uh, inspired by Fernando Pessoa's uh, Book of Disquiet about a poet working at the Goldman Sachs databases. And, you know, it was a virtually unreadable uh, book that I somehow was able to write. And, and I had to admit to myself at some point that I didn't even want to read it. You know, it was not a surprise that other people didn't like it either. You know, there was some good sentence work and I've always been honing my craft in various ways, but there was some fundamental posture or gambit that I was trying to affect as a writer. And this lasted until my early, basically my early 30s. So I would say it lasted a good, you know, 16, 17 years of my aspiring writing life. And then something started to happen to me. And I don't really know the mystery of exactly what what these internal processes of transformation are all about, you know, what occasioned what, whether 9-11 was part of it, whether it was just coming coming to my early 30s and realizing that my youth was beginning to end and my the beginning of my middle age was coming. Or, I don't know. But I started to feel that I was trying to be somebody or I had been trying to be somebody for so long that I wasn't, and I started to get bored with it. And in getting bored with it, I started to pay more attention to what it was that I was trying to avoid. And in the process of doing that, I turned to the narratives, the stories, the characters, the experiences, the textures, the memories 
of my childhood. Things that I had kind of maybe written about in coded ways before, but not directly and not feeling they were the subject of the kind of status-seeking central European modernist aspiring writer that I wanted to be, mm. who was who was going to try to do something a little bit more like, you know, in, in the penal colony, if you will, or the man without qualities or something like that. Um, and so from that was an explosion, there was an explosion of creativity. I mean, I'd been working for seven, 16, 17 years at that point in craft, and I had a lot of it, um, a lot of sort of how to tell a story. And so in a way, the creative explosion expressed itself in form. It wasn't just um, a kind of burst of enthusiasm. It was also a burst of fully formed narratives. I already had some of the, the keys and the clues and the craft to be able to shape things into, into stories. And so then I became a kind of writer that I probably would have despised if in my late adolescence, if you'd told me, uh, you know, I would become a Broadway playwright, I would have said, you know, put a, put, put a bullet in me now. I don't, <laughs> don't need to do that. Um, the world does not need another Broadway playwright, but, but I sort of became, uh, I, I, I became a contract writer, if you will, to use again, the friends and, but, but what's been interesting about that transition of moving from status seeking to contract is that both of those categories have ceased to be as meaningful to me now, because I feel, I don't know, I feel, and maybe this is, this is the, this is really, you know, the, the sense of having come to acquire a level of craft where there is relaxation and patience and where many things can coexist, where, you know, deep literary illusion can coexist with prurient sensationalist, you know, um, scenes. Um, you know, Proust can meet Jerry Springer finally, if you will. Well, I, I want to take this notion of you adopting sort of a, a Whitman-like approach in singing to the nation, but singing from the nation, the the vision that sort of excludes or marginalizes you from the vision, not just you, but so many people from the vision. Um, this indictment of of the American dream of of freedom and opportunity as a sort of false advertising, I feel like runs through a lot of your work. Amir in Disgraced does everything possible to assimilate. He changes his name to an Indian name rather than a Pakistani one because of the positive, positive associations Americans have with India in contrast to Pakistan. He pronounces his first name the way a Hebrew speaker would as he works in a Jewish law firm. He accumulates large amounts of wealth and the status signifiers that go with them. He marries a white woman. And similarly, Ayat Akhtar, the character, is pulled over by the police and tries to pass as Indian. And when he himself is othered and terrorized after 9-11, he starts wearing a crucifix, an act that appalls his girlfriend but she isn't appalled by the act of hiding itself, but rather the using of a cross to do so, as she mentions that her family bought American flags instead. Um, and there's a line in the book that goes, there's a culture here, and it has nothing to do with all the well-meaning nonsense. It's about racism and money worship. And when you're on the correct side of both of these things, that's when you really belong. And this obviously suggests, this equation suggests that if you're on the wrong side of race, no matter how much money you accumulate, you aren't going to belong. 
But in interviews, I've also heard you say it is less about race and more about money at the root of America's rot. And I'm not asking you to rank them, but I, I wanted to bring up both of them, which feel sort of in tension to each other. This yes. And have you maybe unpack it a little bit for us? Sure, of course. Um, yes. And, and I think one of the things that I I increasingly am allowing myself to do is to is to hold contradiction. So I think I would probably stand by both statements that I, you know, I think I think at the end of the day, money is the thing that defines American success. There are there are probably individuals who, through the accumulation of property and wealth, have come to experience, notwithstanding their race, a feeling of American belonging. I think of sort of the owner of Jacksonville Jaguars, for example, Shahid Khan, but who is a you know unrepentant apologist and you know apologist for American sort of can-do greatness. Um, I, I, I suppose you know the the quote that that I that that you read from the book. I it would be important to sort of contextualize where it's coming from, which is that earlier, just earlier in the dialogue scene uh, between two characters that that quote comes from, um, one of the characters quotes Norbert Elias, the great German sociologist, and in which he says that the, in all, let me, let me just actually pull up the actual quote so I don't get it wrong. Um, the established majority takes its we image from a minority of its best and shapes a they image of the despised outsiders from the minority of their worst. And so in a way, the conversation is revolving around this idea that the majority and the minority operate on similar terms. Every community or every group identity tries to derive its identity from a minority of its best and sees the other in terms of the minority of its worst. And within that context, the minority of the best in the United States invariably has been white and rich. That might be changing, might be changing in some ways, that there's something about the get rich or die trying, the Jay-Zs and Beyonce's of the world who've recognized that the echelon to American being is wealth and that participating in American, full American citizenship is about money. And that in the process of, 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 of making the kind of money that they have, they have come to embody a kind of alternative version of what is Amer of Americans at their best. I'm not sure that it's as convincing or widespread to all Americans, and some may believe in it more than others. So I do still think that race is a problematic dimension about whether or not one can accede to a full sense of citizenship in this country. But, but I think wealth is obviously the more, the more central one. I want to, I want to stay with money for a minute longer and then return a little bit later to race. But one of the ways Homeland Elegies is cross genre is not just between novel and memoir, but also within nonfiction itself as the book at various points veers into these long essayistic sections that almost feel like diagnostic monologues or dialogues. And they're, they're some of my favorite parts of Homeland Elegies. And one of them is about money and about debt and the way it has corrupted the American soul. And, and the way it is portrayed in the book does not lay this at Trump's door 
or even at Reagan's door, and also suggests that all the Democratic presidents along the way have participated in it. Um, you trace it back to, in this diagnostic monologue, to Robert Bork in the 70s, who later on is known or most known as the Supreme Court justice that never was. So I was hoping maybe you could just orient us to Bork as one potential origin story for one of America's ailments. Hmm. I love I love the way you frame that, David, because it's exactly right. It's a potential origin story and 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 encourages, I hope, the reader to imagine the alternative histories, you know, that that we have not sort of understood the, the lines that are not drawn between the past and the present. I remember uh, Christopher Lash's uh, extraordinary book, The True and Only Heaven, which is really a history of American progress, the history of American progressivism that never was. And, and the history that we don't we don't pay attention to, and because we don't pay attention to, could not be. Um, so Robert Bork, uh, you know, I, I think an important piece of context for the conversation about antitrust, which is of course upon us and is is at the center of our national life now in ways that many people perhaps don't fully understand, though I think folks are starting to. Um, you know, an important piece of context was in the late '60s, early '70s. Um, I can't remember the year exactly, but there was a there was a uh, attempted merger between two grocery store chains in Southern California, in which uh, the combined grocery store chain would have 8% market share. Judges in that case blocked the merger because an even 8% market share was deemed to potentially be damaging to the local community, to the business owners of that community, and to the workers that were going to be part of this merger, even though it was acknowledged that this merger would create cost-cutting opportunities that would lead to lower prices for consumers. Of course, that's a lot. We couldn't even imagine a universe anymore. Today, Walmart owns north of 50% of market share for groceries in many markets across the country, and the justification is the lowest price to consumers. Robert Bork's main contribution to the American experiment was the thinking that went into a transformation around antitrust litigation, staying out of business's ways, the way of business, as long as business was delivering lower prices to consumers. And so this is what's enabled the growth of these behemoth corporate concerns whose you know, net worth dwarfs the GDP of many small countries. And what has happened is, for example, with Walmart, just to return to Walmart, 86 cents of every dollar that is spent in a Walmart leaves that community. It's, but it's not just the money that's leaving the community, it's all of the local businesses that die in the process. You put a big box store, people can spend less, but they also have less money to spend. And over time, this kind of thinking has led to a kind of impoverishment of the heartland, an impoverishment of the rural regions, and that is fundamentally the argument, at least at, at the, this point in the book, as, a, as embodied by Mike Jacobs, the black Hollywood executive who's giving us this story, that that is really where the current of anger and disenfranchisement and nihilism is coming from that leads to Donald Trump in 2016. Well, there's a, there's a counterpoint in the book, in this book that is full of counterpoints and countervailing streams of thought to this notion of America and money and debt. 
And that is the character of Riaz, who is a Muslim of extreme wealth, who believes the way to win in America is to win on America's terms, to become a behemoth, but for the benefit of Muslims. Um, And he argues that the reason Islam has fallen behind compared to the West can be traced back to the Roman invention of the corporation. And I was hoping you could argue this on Riaz's behalf (laughs) for us. So if you could embody Riaz and, and tell us, tell us his view and his way of approaching sort of the American um, money fever dream on behalf of his community. Delightfully framed. Um, Yes. Riaz, uh, you know, believes in the model uh, espoused by Sheldon Adelson um, that, you know, in order for Amer- for Muslims to have full participation in American life, they have to be able to influence the the halls of power. And that the way to do that is is only money. Uh, full citizenship in America, full the full, you know, suffrage in its fullest embodiment is about writing a check, not not uh, not voting on on election day. And so Riaz is making a lot of money. And what Riaz is doing with this money is he's funding a philanthropic organization called the Riaz Rind uh, Philanthropic Organization, which is about is committed to making, you know, changing conversations and making lives better. And the conversations he wants to change are about Islam. He his analysis of 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 what happened so, to the so-called Muslim world is uh, fundamentally financial and economic. And he makes a very, very good case, and, and one that others have made as well, that um, Muslim inheritance laws, which were in effect and would, could not be circumvented by any kind of legalese or some kind of legal loophole, there was no, there was no way to avoid that when an owner, when it, when it, when an owner of a business died, his immediate heirs had to be made whole upon death. So the wives and children had to gain a share of whatever the assets were. So there was no way to shelter material investment or material assets from individual death. And that's what the corporation enabled the West to do, which was to have a locus where the money was situated, where the money was allocated. And so as people died and as people were born and as people came into into the concern, that their fates, their personal mortal fates did not affect the accruing of capital over time. And and what Riaz suggests is that the West had 600 years for its money to grow at 4%, which is what has led to the extraordinary material bounty, material investments, material innovations, and which is something that the Muslim world has not had. And in part, paradoxically enough, because for Muslims, it was more important to take care of wives and children than it was to make money. And so this is a message that he wants to get out there. Ultimately, what Riaz's philosophical position is, as you as you rightly suggest, is that he's accepting the American model. He's saying there's no way to change this model. They made it. Let's figure out how it works. The way it works most optimally is debt. And we can talk about that if, you, if you'd like. Um, and we're going to use that model that they've created. We're going to make as much money as we can, and we're going to spend it on our own kind. I do want to talk more about debt and I want to talk about debt, not just financially, but also sort of morally. Um, And I want to return to this question of whether when you said that 
you know, money and race are, are the, are more defining of sort of the American situation than freedom and opportunity, but that perhaps money is more central. And I admit when I hear that skepticism on my part, and I want to, I want to just, um, put forth my thinking process and, and have you, you know, push, push back if you want. But in the book, we learn about the bizarre way things have devolved money-wise around debt, how the bundling and selling of debt is now one of the most profitable businesses. And Ayad Akhtar in the book has a play called The Merchant of Debt, which is both a nod to The Merchant of Venice and your actual play, Junk, The Golden Age of Debt. And you also talk about how Americans seem completely unwilling or incapable of having a reckoning around 9-11. And that instead of addressing that wound and its possible causes, and in a way, I think by not addressing it, not putting it in any sort of true historical or global political context. So those people over there are evil and we're innocent going about our day as if going about our day as Americans has no implications elsewhere. We, we continue to wound others rather than to really look at the wound. So in a way, I feel like that also has somehow has to do with debt, or maybe I'm stretching that too far. No, I, I, no, I think it does. So I wonder about our original debts in that light, which feel like we have a similar relationship of avoidance to as we do to 9-11, that our yeah. country was formed through both chattel slavery and its coerced labor and through stolen land and the stolen resources from the land, whether that's coal or oil or uranium. So my question to you is, couldn't we say that instead of facing the debt we owe to African-Americans and indigenous Americans, we continue to sell the debt forward. We create new debts. We leverage ourselves farther and farther rather than reckoning with our past and what we owe the way we're sort of now monetizing debt as something itself to sell in a true literal financial way that maybe we can't separate money as central if that money was actually created through these racial categories. Yeah. Look, that's such an extraordinarily wide ranging perspective and, 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 and of course accurate. I mean, there's, you know, if we're going to talk about the Enlightenment and the, the, it's impossible to speak of the Enlightenment without also recognizing the Enlightenment is predicated on the despoiling of the colonies and the the money that the European uh, powers made off of sugar and rubber and, and other such things, slave trade. And so this sort of movement forward in history is predicated on a certain predation, on a, on a terrorism, on a regime of, of, of murder and whatnot. All of that's true. And, and I think that you yourself in, in your brilliant articulation offered the what seems like a kind of not a way out, but a kind of a, the avoidance mechanism, which is paying it, which is go, moving it forward. You know, it's it's that the de- it's the problem of, of debt. And, and, you know, I think the irony of being being a Muslim American writer who comes from a culture where interest is forbidden has given me perhaps an unusual sensitivity to the the workings of debt that I it took me many years to put that make that connection myself but but in any event what I would say is that you know the way to not pay your debt is to take out debt on your debt yeah right and yes. so if you do that long enough then the mechanisms of debt become themselves 
the art or the, the science, and you become so distanced from the actual original labor asset thing itself, you have so many chains of derivative value that it extends really ad infinitum, and that's where we are. We, we don't live in a capitalist world anymore, really. We live in, we need a new word for it because it's not capital in any traditional sense of the world, word, it's leverage. Everything is leverage. And you know, getting back to the, the question of debt, the, the little anecdote that I wanna share, which perhaps doesn't answer your question directly, but, but again, speaks to the way in which you yourself have offered what I think could be an answer to that, and why money still matters more than where it's coming from. I was at a noodle bar in, uh, on the Upper West Side before the pandemic uh, hit, and I was having you know, some lunch, and fellow sitting next to me in his early 30s, Asian American, uh, we got to talking. He was very well-dressed, and I asked him what he did. He asked me what I did. I told him, he, I asked him what he did. He was managing the sovereign, he was managing the real estate holdings for one of the uh, Middle Eastern so sovereign wealth fronts, one of the, the small, you know, I won't say which one because then you could identify him, but uh, one of those countries, you know, like uh, around, right around Saudi Arabia. So, um, and he was in New York to close a deal on a building. And, and we started talking about uh, income inequality, which he thought was a very big problem and something that needed to be dealt with. And he said, you know, to me, the way that I think of it, this is now I'm speaking as him, the problem isn't so much those who have and those who don't. It's not the haves and the have-nots. That's really not how I see it, he says. He says the problem is that there are people who understand debt and there are people who don't. And that's the difference between all of these categories. Because debt is the way that the system has figured out how to process time. We have transformed time itself, the contingencies of time, the possibilities of time, into a financialized process that enables material growth. That process is debt. It ultimately doesn't matter where the money's coming from anymore. And that's part of the problem. And that's why we can have a president who is entirely a creation of debt and whose gap between appearance and reality is the very gap you're talking about. <laughs> so far removed from its source that there is no connection to reality anymore. Yeah. We're talking today to Ayad Akhtar about his latest book, Homeland Elegies, a novel. Ayad, you've, you've cited Jewish American writers as one of your influences, perhaps most notably Saul Bellow, but also Philip Roth and even Larry David. Yes. <laughs> For me, I see the most parallels between you, or at least with Homeland Elegies, with you and Roth in particular, writing that is formally experimental, but compulsively readable, writing that is sexual, full of desire, that explores anger and rage, that feels that reveals something about the nation, but by writing from and through the particulars of one very specific subset of it, and where that subset doesn't even feel representative to his or your own community, or perhaps feels too representative of your own community. Um, and I'd like to pivot to your relationship to the Muslim community and use Roth as a launching point for that. The irony with Roth is he started receiving flack in 1959 
first book by Columbus that is incredibly tame for Philip Roth. I know. <laughs> but but the Jewish community argued that if not openly anti-Semitic, that his work at least catalyzed anti-Semitic thought. And people said the depictions of, of Jewish characters were depraved and lecherous. Then 10 years later, with Portnoy's complaint, the scholar Gershom Sholem argued that Roth reveled in obscenity, and Sholem claimed that this was the very book anti-Semites had been waiting for. So I'd love to talk about the response you received from some in the Muslim community for your play Disgraced, not to dredge up something from long ago, but because like Roth, where his critics and critiques are incorporated into his work, and his critics actually appear as characters in his work, Disgraced and the controversy around it is also part of Homeland Elegies. So yeah. bef before we talk about it, though, I was hoping you might read the the first section, the opening section of chapter two. Yeah. And then, and then tell us what you're doing there. Okay. Not quite 10 years after 9-11, I wrote a play in which an American-born character with Muslim origins confesses that as the towers were falling... He felt something unexpected and unwelcome, a sense of pride, a blush is how he describes it, which he explains in the play's climactic scene made him realize that despite being born here, despite the totality of his belief in this country and his commitment to being an American, he somehow still identified with a mentality that saw itself as aggrieved and other, a mindset he spent much of the play despising and for which he continually uses to the chagrin of those on stage and many in the audience, the term Muslim. Later, the play's only other character of Muslim origin refers to the 9-11 attacks as something America deserved and a likely harbinger of more to come. When the play went on to win a Pulitzer and be performed around the country and then the world, the one question I would be asked more than any other, and which I'm still asked fairly often, is how much of me is in it? Over time, I've gleaned that what I'm usually being asked is whether I too felt a blush of pride on September 11th, and if so, whether I believe America deserved what it got. And finally, if I, like my character, think that further Muslim attacks on America are likely. When they ask if the play is autobiographical, what people are really asking me is about my politics. For years, I deflected. Had I wanted to write an autobiography, I could have done so. Had I wanted to write an anti-American screed, I could have done that too. But I hadn't done either. Wasn't that enough? Apparently not. To most of my questioners, I discovered my demure evasions were really affirmations. My choice not to disavow having had such feelings myself was taken as a tacit confession of guilt. Why else would I stay silent? In other words, while those asking couldn't identify with having feel feelings like this, they certainly could identify with not wanting to admit them if they did. As ever, interpretation has more to do with the one interpreting than the one being interpreted. Realizing my reticence was proving counterproductive, I tried a different tack. For me to indulge the question, I would say, and point away from the work back to the life of the one who created it, only undermines the particular sort of truth I believe art is after. Art's power, unlike journalism, has little to do with the reliability of its sourcing, I would say. Finally, I would quote D.H. Lawrence, never trust the artist, trust the tale. For a time, this seemed to work well enough. Then, in November of 2015, some four months into his candidacy, Trump announced he'd seen Muslims celebrating in Jersey City on the day of the attacks. My agent's phone started ringing. 
I turned down a request to appear on Bill Maher's show to discuss the claim, and two days later, I declined a similar invitation to appear on Fox and Friends. But the questions kept coming as people now cited my play as proof of a deeper, alarming truth about the American Muslim response to 9-11. My evasion started to seem irresponsible to me. Wasn't it important for me to say something substantial? But what? The sentiments expressed in the play had, of course, come from somewhere, but how to express the complex, often contradictory alchemy at work in translating experience into art? The only thing I could put simply was that there was no simple way to put it. There was no straightforward way to speak of the tortured vein opened up in my family by the killing of the man I believe my mother was in love with most of her life, not my father, but one of his best friends from medical school, Latif Awan. It was during my mother's grief over Latif's murder that she would make comments that led to the lines in my play, comments in which I would educe not only the startling depth of my mother's divided loyalties, but also the contours of the deepest fault line, I believe, separating so much of the so-called Muslim world from the so-called West. Just a few words, but ones for which I had a lifetime of context. I'd buried both context and tale inside the play I wrote, masking its true source from the audience. I didn't believe a more obvious rendition would meet with greater understanding. I still don't, but I suppose we're about to find out. That right there, I mean, after this very confusing and hopefully compelling, maybe even absorbing or even addictive chapter about Trump and my father, quote unquote, I follow it up with a poetics of dissembling. And I suggest to the reader that what they've read of me before certainly did not reflect my own opinion because I was transmuting experience into art. And so now I'm going to continue to transmute experience into art. <laughs> and I'm going to give you the terms to understand it all as I lie to you, telling you, as D.H. Lawrence says, not to trust me. Trust the tale. Well, I listened to a podcast called Otherhood that interviewed the actor Rajesh Bose, mm -hmm. who at the time of the interview had been playing the protagonist Amir in Disgraced for six months straight, and he was on his third production of it. And yeah. since then, since this interview, he's gone on to act in several other plays of yours. Yeah. And it is clear from the interview that he has a lot of respect for the material, and yet his experience of being Amir caused immense stress for him beyond the insomnia it created every night. For one, for one, he echoed something that you have also said, that if an audience member came to disgraced with anti-Muslim sentiment, that the play could confirm the prejudices that they already had, that they could walk out um, going, see, that's how they are. He, he worried what the audiences were getting even as he felt that a competent production of the play wouldn't lead a nuanced watcher to the, to that conclusion. But the thing that he raised that I found particularly interesting is about representation and scarcity. He said the year he was acting in disgraced, there was only one play about Muslims touring the United States. And this was it. And the only play with South Asian protagonists as well. And Bose felt if we were living in a world with an abundance of Muslim representation, of Muslim stories of all types being told, that the story of one man's journey through self-loathing is a very compelling story as part of that array. 
he found this question that the play explores of where does this type of self-loathing come from, particularly fascinating to him. And he cited the portrait of Bobby Jindal, the Indian American governor. He commissions a portrait of himself where he looks white. And he said it was fascinating to him. Where does that come from? Where does the self-loathing come from that would make him make a public portrait of himself with white skin? But at the same time, when there are no other plays touring about or starring Muslims or South Asians, where, where yeah. this is the only one, he couldn't help but wonder just why this play was so popular among non-Muslim Americans, why this story in particular, one that could confirm a white person's anti-Muslim prejudices, would be so in, inviting and lauded in the non-Muslim American world. Well, I mean, look, it's a, it, a characteristically thoughtful response on the part of Rajesh, who's you know just such a just a, such a smart guy and a wonderful actor. Um, my work has been, you know, I've been blessed to be to to have his talents attached to my work. Uh, everything he says is true. I don't really know what more there is to say about it. I mean, it, you know, it's interesting with Homeland Elegies. I suppose. I'm wrestling with or dealing with everything he's suggesting. And I'm saying, okay, so here's another five or 10 stories. <laughs> here's another, it, it, the, the, the landscape isn't considerably more populated by popular uh, stories about Muslims in the, in the American imagination. So let me throw another three huge ones out there. My father, Riaz Rind and Asha. And let me throw, let me scatter another dozen much more truncated versions out there. And let's try to seed or populate a landscape so that I can be free to write. Yeah. <laughs> because, because one of the dilemmas, you know, is that I'm writing, I'm writing in a way as if there were an abundance and profusion of those stories. Because for me, there are an abundance or profusion of those stories. I'm not going to internalize that paucity and then react artistically to that situation of paucity. That's been my attitude. I'm not going to let the environment determine my production. But what, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a somewhat naive stance to take as an artist because in, in failing to account for that paucity, I have been forced to deal with the consequences of that paucity. And so in a way, I mean, Homeland Elegies is an attempt to wrestle with all of that. Well, it reminds me of, uh, there's a, a recent episode on the podcast uh, called Queer Beatitudes between the writers Garth Greenwell and Brandon Taylor. And um, Brandon Taylor recently tweeted something that reminded me of that, where he said, we should evaluate art from an expectation of surplus rather than from a place of scarcity. And, yes, exactly. and he's, he's saying that as a black queer writer. Um, yes, because that's the only position, that's the only position of freedom for him as an artist. Yeah. And that's also, that also is, is, is reflective of his own experience of himself is what my surmise is because I'm imagining his perspective similar to mine, maybe rightly, maybe wrongly that I exist in that space of abundance, my family's stories, all of the rich background and the tapestry of life that, that goes into, you know, a family and its extended history and all of that. So just because the American people don't know that doesn't mean I don't know that. Right. Well, I want to, I want to 
take what you just said about providing more stories in Homeland Elegies and ask sort of another elaborate question about representation. So Bose goes on to talk about an incident you've probably heard about as the experience that happened became an op-ed of a queer Muslim American theater owner in Chicago who went with his Muslim American Pakistani partner to the first production of the play Disgraced in Chicago. And his partner was the only visible person of color in the audience. And his partner felt tangibly demonized by the other theater goers as they walked out. And I've read of other incidents where the play has activated this sort of animus in the audience. And when I think about Bose saying before, I think a competent production and a nuanced watcher wouldn't lead to this. I do. I mean, I, I, my own bias, I, I wonder about how, um, how abundant nuanced watchers are in the United States of today, but, <laughs> well, but certainly 2020. yes, but this, but this one experience caused the theater, theater owner to write an op-ed calling for quote unquote responsible representation. But Bose in the podcast thinks it is more complicated than that, that Ayad Akhtar shouldn't have to write only Muslims who are good, that that is an unfair burden. For instance, obviously when Tennessee Williams writes, a terrible white character. No one thinks that that person is representative of the white race. Um, and also the irony that Amir, speaking of nuanced watchers, the irony that Amir is an apostate and yet is being taken as representative of Muslims nonetheless. Yeah. But, but I wanted to take these hard to answer questions and ask you something about disgraced versus homeland elegies, because I have a, a good friend who's a writer and is also a Muslim American, his parents immigrants from India, who really had trouble with Disgraced. Uh, he's not a fan of this play. But he relayed to me something that I thought was interesting. He said to me, recently I am meeting so many young Muslims, particularly Pakistanis, who were deeply troubled by Disgraced, but loved Homeland Elegies. One person even said, Ayad is listening to me. So two questions for you around this. Does that difference in response make sense to you or seem surprising? And do you feel like something has changed from 2012 until now with regards to your approach as a writer with regards to representation and Muslim American experience? Is it possible to be um, overwhelmed by nuance? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've... I feel like you've whacked me over the head with nuance. Um, I mean that as a compliment. That's 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 a lot of stuff that you put out there uh, for me to sort of unpack and respond to. And obviously, some of it uh, I'm in, I'm I'm ill-equipped uh, to do to do. You know, I, I think one of the things about disgraced that I think continues to be misunderstood is that it, it's articulating a post-colonial, an, an unprocessed and un, inco, still inchoate, toxic post-colonial poisonous rage, which we in the Muslim world, for lack of a better way of putting it, have been dealing with. And it turns out that we as Muslims 
in the 20th and 21st centuries may just be canaries in the coal mine for the kind of radical disenfranchisement and that, that the entire world and maybe even the planet have been undergoing, right? This is a very lofty and grandiose pro proposition, but I'm gonna offer it. I'm gonna suggest that the emotions at the heart of disgraced are fully, fully real. And that it's simply, in a sense, it's really simply the political act of violence, which I see as an act of political violence, in which Amir, a brown man, hits a white woman who is an alleged ally, right? And we are dealing now, post-George Floyd, with the dilemmas of allyship and all of that in a much more clear way, that in a way, disgraced is perhaps still relevant in ways that the audiences have found difficult to access because of this obvious signifier of a man hitting a woman. I don't really know what to say to that because it happened. It happened. It happened to me as a writer as, it, as I was writing. I, for me to excise that from the play, you know, the early review from The New Yorker said something like, you know, intelligent, wonderful, this, that, the other, until a certain point at which Akhtar loses control of his play and, and the ending cannot recover. Well, the losing control of the play is actually its triumph. But that triumph is so problematic that it continues to engender controversy and difficulty. I don't want to claim something for the play, but I also cannot in good conscience disavow it. So all of that to say, am I listening? I've always been listening. That is my feeling. That my feeling is that I've always been listening. And when Abe gets up on the stage at the end of the play and says for 300 years, they've been wanting us to look like them, be like them, marry their women. They disgraced us. They changed our laws, they took our land. The audience doesn't hear his speech. They just hear an angry young man and they go blah, 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 blah. And of course, you've probably come across me making this comment that audience, the question I get after this play nine times out of 10, every single time is why is it called disgraced? And this is after the, this character has spoken to use the title twice in a monologue center stage addressing them. Right. So that is enfolded inside the play, but for some reason continues not to be heard. Is that a fault of the craft? Is it a fault of the audience? Is it a fault of the productions? Is it a, I mean, maybe there just has not been a production that is able to, 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 to do justice to it. I don't know. I feel like I've been listening all along. Am I listening anew? Well, I'm certainly listening to the landscape and what has, what troubles disgraced has brought my, brought into my own life. Yeah. <laughs> but I, what, what made me think of it, of asking this question was partly related to you saying, well, now I've provided f five or six more stories. And, and, and when we were talking about scarcity and I, that's where my presumption goes of why these 
young Muslim Pakistanis who had trouble with disgraced are feeling seen and love Homeland elegies because I think of disgraced largely having one South Asian Muslim on stage at a dinner party among a whole bunch of others, maybe being viewed by a Muslim South Asian in the audience who might be one or the only Muslim South Asian in a white audience. And we have that intensity around, um, we have that intensity around being in the live audience versus reading, but also, but I think mainly because, um, there's a wide spectrum of Muslim representation that is contradictory and ever shifting within a given character in Homeland Elegies. And there are many different characters who are Muslim in Homeland Elegies. There are these trenchant critiques of Islam in the book that are going to, you know, I'm sh- surely are, are going <laughs> to upset some people, but also um, has practitioners of Islam who are compellingly complicated characters. Um, in other words, it feels like it allows many different places for a Muslim reader to find a place to stand within the narrative. And it may not yeah. always be with the same person because these people right. are living dynamic characters. But when you're like, when you're in a dinner party, hi- highlighted your journey, your heroes or anti-hero journey is in stark contrast to all of these people who are at your dinner party with you. There is nowhere else. There's very little other place to stand, but in Amir's body, if you're a Muslim. I, uh, yes. And, 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 you know, my response to that would be, I wrote two other plays about Muslim American life Yeah, with very, very different, you know, and I all wrote these plays at the same time. So the multiplicity of, of, of representations was already there. You know, the who and the what covers a gamut of, you know, it's four very different approaches to being Muslim. Yeah. You know, and, and the invisible hand to me, I mean, it's, you know, it's right out of what's happening right now. You know, the, the corrupt a government that is collapsed into corruption and, and, you know, a young activist who believes that violence may be necessary to change the world. It's hard to feel that I can be on the side of recognizing some mistake. I don't know that I feel that way. Yeah. No, I wasn't suggesting that. No, I, I no, no, no. I'm just, I'm just trying to respond to you open heartedly. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, go, I'm going there because I think I, you know, I think, you know, for example, the, the fellow that you're talking about who wrote the op-ed, you know, you know, who then proceeded to write um, all of the uh, regional American theaters. And say, if you're going to do this play, just know that you're going to have this, that, and the other, and you should do this and that. I mean, the, the atmosphere of, of uh, trepidation and it, 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 it was a kind of harbinger of the kind of things we're seeing now, sort of the, the Philip Gustin exhibit or whatever, was already kind of nascent with, the, with, with disgrace, in part because of his response. You know, and I'm not, I'm not sure that I, I'm, I can get on board with that as a response. Yeah. Well, before we leave this topic, I, I want to, or maybe to further go into it, but from a different angle, I wanted to, you to talk a little bit about Satanic Verses, Salman Rushdie's uh, Satanic sure. Verses, which was a transformative for, book for you in your real life. 
plays yes. a role in Homeland Elegies. And I it was does. just I, I, w- I was curious if you could talk to us you know, a little bit about it in relationship to your development as a writer, but also the ways that you feel like it's his stance is similar or departs from yours. Like how, how is Rushdie's project and the, your project in Homeland Elegies with regards to its engagement with Islam? Um, how are they similar and how are they not similar? Well, so just as a prelude, home, um, Satanic Verses was a huge event in my life. I read it when I was 18 or 19. I can't remember, what, you know, just a year after it came out. And um, it transformed me. I had not encountered, as I write in the book, as the narrator, this is one of the things that overlaps with our lives, our two lives. I'd never enc- encountered metafiction uh, before. I'd never encountered magical realism and I'd also never encountered so much vivid detail from my own sort of like cultural background on the page. So it was really, I was completely bowled over. And I was bowled over to the point that I remember as I was reading it, um, I was home uh, from college and I was crying every day when I wasn't reading this book. I was sobbing. And my father thought something was wrong. I mean, he was really concerned because I was just sobbing all the time. And so we went for a walk and he said, what is going on with you? Why are you crying all the time? I said, well, because I'm reading this book and I don't know that I'm ever going to be able to write anything like this. It was so fundamental to me. It was such a formative experience. And you can imagine the extraordinary thrill when someone read this book and, you know, gave me a blurb. And, you know, after being in it and after being criticized by my, my quote unquote family member in it, sort of long tirade that she has against Salman Rushdie. You know, I think what what Salman is doing in that book, you know, is still unprecedented, is still revolutionary, is still unhearable and unreadable for the Muslim community. You know, the the portrait of the the kind of refracted, fantastical, demonic version of the Islamic mythos that he presents is, is certainly satire, but it's also critique. And it's a critique, it's a multivalent critique, it's a critique of our contemporary world, but it's also a critique of the Islamic mythos. And and it's hard to read it. I mean, it's intended for us, meaning us Muslims, but we don't want it. And uh, we don't want to engage in it. And we are still not interested in reflecting on our unreflected relationship to the Prophet. In part because we don't, it appears that we, and I, of course, am speaking largely for for a, a cohort of a billion people, which is totally unacceptable and, you know, absolutely untenable, but I'm going to do it anyway, because there is a, I'm channeling something as I do that. Um, you know, I, I think we don't see that the West in sullying its own symbols has really ended up any better. And we still have one that we believe in. So we're not going to do the work of trying to figure out whether there's historical truth or what the historical truth is or what the Quran might even be. We're not even gonna ask the question about what it could be. It's the word of God. What else might it be? Well, we don't know, we don't, we don't ask the question. So, I mean, we're so far behind on the levels of scholarship and, and whatnot when it comes to sort of, you know, Western philological, historistic, historical analysis and all that when it comes to the Quran. We just, I mean, we're hundreds of years behind the West in that respect. 
So I, I don't think of that as a quality or a value or of something useful. I personally believe, David, that the Quran is a great impediment to our relationship to the divine as Muslims, because in essence, what we've done is we've formulated the utterance of God. We've said it means very precise, particular things. And your own relationship, your own personal relationship to the text or your own personal relationship to whatever this inflow, this divine inflow might be, has no bearing. It's already happened. It came through Muhammad. It happened once in history. All we have to do is understand what it means. So the living relationship to the word, I mean, in the Jewish tradition, the sort of deep, ongoing interrogation of the hidden meanings of the five books of Moses tries to resuscitate this living connection to the divine source. We are foreclosed uh, to any relationship to that. And, and any attempt to do something like opening up a channel of interpretive experiential, it's considered heresy. So, you know, what are you going to do? Well, I want to I wanna stay with this um, thread of heresy for a second. Um, the Muslim philanthropist in the book, Riaz, has has his critique of Islam from a financial perspective in the book. But your character also has one, too, where your character says, my own journey from childhood faith to adult certainty about the very human contingency at the heart of Islam's central narratives is a tale beyond the scope of these pages, but one that someday... I will try to tell in all its tortured entirety. When I do, I will attempt it without an ounce of malice and may still not survive its publication. You then go on to measure how far you feel Muslims still have to go based on your own fear of reprisal if you were to fully go into just how far you feel Muslims have to go. <laughs> I, I wanted to bring this up in the context of Charlie, the Charlie Hebdo attacks, particularly mm -hmm. since you're taking over as head of PEN America. And also right. because those attacks are back in the news because of the trial now going on in France. So Charlie Hebdo has recently republished all of the offensive comics as the trial started. A Pakistani yeah. man attacked two people with a meat cleaver outside their offices since the trial began. And then earlier this month, a high school teacher teaching a class on free speech showed the offensive cartoons despite the warnings from some of his students that it wasn't a good idea and was ultimately beheaded publicly by an 18-year-old Chechnyan. But if we return to the original attacks on Charlie Hebdo, Pan America awarded the murdered cartoonists the Freedom of Expression Courage Award, and this was met with a lot of controversy. There yeah. were 242 writers who signed a letter, and they included Teju Cole, John Berger, Russell Banks, Wallace Shawn, Juno Diaz, Deborah Eisenberg, um, and many others. And I was asked to sign that letter as well. And they argued that there is a, a critical difference between staunchly supporting expression that violates the acceptable, something that they all supported, and enthusiastically rewarding such expression. And they say, quote, in an unequal society, equal opportunity offense does not have an equal effect. And they cite 
the long history of French colonial conquest in North Africa and the Middle East. But on the other hand, Salman Rushdie said, if Penn as a free speech organization can't defend and celebrate people who have been murdered for drawing pictures, then frankly, the organization is not worth the name. <laughs> so, he, said, he said some other things too. Yes, he did. <laughs> um, I didn't include those. But um, yes. specific to, he said some other uh, things specific to some of the writers who, who canceled their attendance to yeah. the, um, to the, he called, uh, he, ca- he called them by a uh, pejorative uh, version of the female genitalia. Yes. yes. Um, so I, I, I'm curious if we could take all of these questions, which all of these questions I think are alive in Homeland Elegies and they're alive in mm. a lot of your plays. Um, but you're also in this unique position where you are now going to helm a, a free speech, social justice writers organization. And I was just, and this is an alive issue in the news. I'm not asking you to give a, um, uh, you know, you're, I, I'm just asking you to explore it with me a little in the moment. I was asked to sign that letter. Uh, Teju sent me uh, that, and a couple of other writers sent me that email. Um, and uh, I had, think I just joined the organization and I had a long conversation with Suzanne Nossel, the executive director, you know, who was partly behind awarding the journalists at Charlie Hebdo. I mean, part of the sort of, she was leading up the charge. Um, and I and I decided neither to sign that year nor to go to the gala. I, um, and it was, a, it was just, I didn't make any public, there was no public statement about it. It was just something that I didn't want. I didn't want to weigh in one side or the other. I saw both perspectives. Um, you know, I, I've lived in France. I, I lived in France for two years and um, uh, speak French fluently and French culture is an, has been an important experience in my life. And, and I fully recognize the extent to which um, teasing, prodding, poking at, making fun of, marginalizing, defining and de- degrading Muslims is a national pastime in France. It's something that the French... Uh, luxuriate in. Um, you know, even one of their great modernist classics, um, The Stranger, is essentially about a French man coming to understand the condition of the French soul, of his own soul, through the murder of an Arab, right? And this is all well and good, but it's something that's never really talked about in France. There's a legacy, its relationship with the Muslim world and its own sort of Muslim colonies that is not open for discussion. So, Within that context, it certainly is a different thing. You know, in this country, um, we wouldn't get away with some version of the same if we were to sort of put in minstrelsy or blackface or the vaudevillian traditions to have a contemporary cartoonist uh, unironically making fun of Cornell West or whomever by, and, and we're not even going to the prophet. I'm just talking about secular figures, just sort of national personalities. Uh, you know, they would be fired. Now, would they be murdered? Probably, they probably wouldn't be murdered. And I think that's where we're talking about, you know, the line. And I think Salman is, the critique is right and Salman is right. But, but, but to not recognize <laughs> That murder is, you know, 
it's not, it's not an appropriate response to someone else's expression. The fact that it exists, so that's, that's the sort of philosophical, or let's say, let's call it the ethical dimension of it, right? Ethics, an un, unpracticed and ultimately unuseful dimension of philosophy. So, but on the practical side of things, the question of, of somebody warning this teacher to not do this because it was going to have an effect, well, that's also true. That is to say, within that French context, which is so um, explosive because of its history, to do certain things is going to have cer a certain effect. And to not recognize that is also, in a sense, to sort of not recognize the reality that, that they are living in. So the Hebdo guys, look, it's, they don't deserve to die. Of course not. It's hard to imagine that they didn't understand there was a danger. And so be, in between all of that lies some position, you, you know, a quadrant that you can stand on one side or the other of the, you can align yourself with this cardinal point of that quadrant or that cardinal point of the quadrant. I don't know where I stand ultimately. I mean, in the sense that I am writing in ways that, you know, eventually if I up the octane could get me into some trouble. Right. So, but I'm, but I'm, but I'm aware of that. And as a writer, my position is not that I shouldn't have to suffer that consequence. I shouldn't have to suffer that consequence, but I am also undertaking the writing knowing that if I do it a certain way, I may suffer that consequence. And I've tried for the time being to avoid doing that. Yeah, that's a great answer. And I, I want to move from talking about the prophet and your belief that one should be able to engage with his life in the Quran in general, not as untouchable things, but evaluated historically and as literature and as myth, and that even doing so would be a benefit to Muslim culture. I, I wanted to move from the prophet to the, a question more generally of prophecy. Because um, one might assume that your rejection of Islam would make you a secular humanist, someone who places human reason and human ingenuity, human knowledge and human progress at the center of things, very much how I imagine in my mind Salman Rushdie might be. Mm -hmm. But looking at your life, your interest in one point in Sufism or Islamic mysticism, your interest in pursuing a mentorship with Grotowski, who was a student himself of the Armenian mystic Gurdjieff, suggests someone seeking something beyond the human. But yeah. the thing that struck me the most in this regard was one of your essayistic sections in the book, a surprising section on dream work, and that both you and in real life and your character have for, for a quarter century been deeply involved with dream work, tying a pencil to your finger to wake up multiple times at night to record your dreams. But you've also had multiple impossible to explain dreams that were ultimately prophetic, that dramatized something that hadn't happened, but that did ultimately happen. Yeah. And what I was hoping you could talk about, if it isn't too personal to ask this, sure. but I'm curious, I'm curious how having such inexplicable dreams has either shaped your worldview or how it has rattled your worldview if it hasn't shaped it. Um, I, I would quote Emerson by saying that I have embraced proximities, not covenants. It's a quote out of self-reliance. Mm. I think that, that these 
ruptures of the time-space continuum that I've become accustomed to, dreaming about things that happen in the future and whatnot, have made it clear to me that my waking consciousness and the rules of my waking consciousness are not the only rules by which uh, reality appears to be unfolding in my life. Um, and so I say proximities and not covenants, there is no fixed reality, it seems, for me to trust. And I could go crazy or I could just say, wow, I have no idea what the hell is going on. Something interesting seems to be happening. I'm going to see if I can surf or be inside these moving plates that have never seemed to land anywhere in particular. Now, that's an acceptable answer. Here's the unacceptable answer. It's clear to me that the mystical traditions have some awareness of other dimensions of reality. Now, I don't know how to account for what that means. Maybe the physicists in speaking about quantum mechanics, probability, cats that both exist as dead and alive, particles that can be in two places at the same time, particles that when separated across a space of light years can affect each other's spin factors, another breach of the time-space continuum, that perhaps to all of this, to the texture of reality at some very extraordinarily macro level and some extraordinary, extraordinary micro level is no longer operating in accordance with the kind of middle level that we are at in our daily lives. And that we do on a daily basis have some Congress with the macro level and the micro level, though we may not fully understand what its rules what the rules of this engagement and this fluctuation, if you will, are. And so I, I do think that the mystical traditions are one of the things that I've spent so much time in my life studying, you know, whether it's the Christian mystical tradition or the Jewish mystical tradition or the Muslim mystical tradition or the Hindu mystical tradition, really the Hindu mystical tradition is the one that I've spent the most time studying, um, seem to have some way of formulating um, provisional makeshift roadmaps for understanding these micro, micro levels and macro, macro levels, and their interface with this middle level that is our daily consciousness. You say at one point in the book, a dream is actually the experience of language in the body. What does that mean to you? It's a proposition that the mentor, Mary Moroni, in the book, incidentally, her last name, a last name she shares with the Oracle in uh, the Book of Mormon, the angel who comes to visit Joseph Smith and establishing that first American religion. Um, Mary Moroni suggests that dreaming or the, un she, 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 she formulates the unconscious, the Freudian unconscious in a number of different ways. And one of the braining metaphors that she uses is language, that the unconscious is a kind of language, a language which we are not aware of, the possibilities of experience that we are not aware of. The other proposition that she makes is that our perception is entirely 
defined by our corporality, that the experience of language is formulated by sight, hearing, the way that the arms move, whatnot, that, that, that grammar is substantially informed or entirely defined by the body. And that her suggestion is that dream life is an access to, or the dream state is a state in which language is operating at that more primal level, where it is not reified and separated from those processes of perception and bodily experience, the organs, life, for example, the involuntary movement of the heart, all of that stuff is actually part of what determines our language. And that access to that level of language is something we have in the dream state. So it's, a com it's, a, it's a complicated and confusing proposition, but it's one that is less about an idea and more about the experience, another experience of language, a different dimension of language, one that we experience, for example, in poetry more often than we do, say, in prose, where there is a kind of presence, a corporal presence, one ex I experience it quite often in Shakespeare, where the connection, the, me the, 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 the junctures between meaning, sound, image, rhythm, are operating not in accordance with the kind of processes of higher cognition, executive function, rational thought, but some other order, something along the lines of the order of the body. Another writer who writes about it, I think eloquently in, in Malloy is Samuel Beckett where the process of the protagonist's movement from one experience of language into another is a movement from the ego or the idea of the self into the experience of the body. I don't know if any of that made any sense, but... No, it, it did. And I, I'm thinking about listeners who haven't read Homeland Elegies yet who are wondering how we got from... Muslim representation, Trump, Osama bin Laden, 9-11, and Charlie Hebdo to a discussion of dream work. And I want to tell you, I guess I want to bring up the ways I felt like dream work sat within Homeland Elegies and to see what you thought mm -hmm. about it too. Because I felt like one way of looking at Homeland Elegies in its critique of America is a critique of America dying at the altar of, of the individual and the destruction of any sense of, of the collective, of collective purpose. And when I think about how your dreams connect to the world, quote unquote, out there, that's something we normally associate with something that's as something deeply subjective as an activity of one individual's brain could somehow be commingling with a sea of things out in the world. I also think about you quoting Plato in one interview where he asserts that the city is a metaphor for the soul, and that Homeland Elegies is partially about the construction of the self from the fragments and debris of a society. And then I also think of Grotowski and how he strove to connect to the collective unconscious through the nonverbal and preverbal with his actors. But perhaps most of all, I think of something you say at the beginning of your Steinberg Playwright Award acceptance speech, where you say, a group of neuroscientists have discovered that watching live theater can synchronize the heartbeats of an audience. One of the researchers put it this way. 
experiencing the live theater performance was extraordinary enough to overcome group differences and produce a common physiological experience. It seems to me much of your work is about people trying in various ways to belong, to become part of a collective and of a country doing its best to make that impossible. <laughs> but, but, but the fact that our bodies in a theater would do this suggests something hopeful. And I, I, I don't want to overstate the importance or of the power of art, but I did want to hear any countervailing thoughts you have about us as a collective against the odds before I ask you a final question about Trump. Thank you for that. Extraordinary, extraordinary prelude to a brilliant question. Um, I, wow. Um, incidentally, and, and, you know, I have not divulged this to anybody else, David, uh, the mentor who suggested that I first note my dreams was Grotowski actually. Oh, so wow. it's composited, uh, Grotowski's advice is composited to my, my college teacher, Mary Maroney, who's inspired by Mary Capello, a teacher who I had my freshman and sophomore years, beginning of my sophomore year. And she was a great aficionado of the psychoanalytic tradition and a great student of her dreams. But the technique itself for the pencil came from Grotowski. Um, so, yes, I do believe, you know, people ask me a lot, are you hopeful? Yeah, yeah, yada, yada, yada. I am hopeful. I am very hopeful. I'm hopeful because I feel that I am in the hunt. And every time that I get out there into a theater with a play or the writing of this book, I am closer and closer to finding a way through craft to become one with the viewer or the reader. I am trying to create exactly the experience you are talking about. And I'm hopeful because I see encouraging signs. <laughs> I'm getting better at creating an absorbing sense of losing oneself, losing myself, the audience losing themselves in the eternal now of this collective experience that we are sharing together in the theater. And it's a mentality that I brought to the book as well trying to create an absorbing state of consciousness in which memory, history, anticipation, empathy, jeopardy, seduction, all coexist. And so, yes, I'm hopeful that the process of doing this can create this sense of oneness. What is the purpose of that oneness? I don't know, but it seems like the greatest possible thing that I could do with my life is to be in service of that oneness. Is that a political act? I don't know, maybe it is. Plato would seem to suggest that it is, but I'm not clear in what way that is a political act. All I'm clear about is that I know, and this is something that I've said in the past, that experience itself contains some enduring indestructible core of good, that the good exists nested inside experience itself. It is indestructible and it is enduring. And all we have to do is access it. And art can, I think, open us to the experience or the disclosure of the pathway 
to that nugget at the heart of experience. That is the very, very highfalutin formulation of what I try to do and what I wake up every morning to try to do. And it's the explanation that unifies all of these threads, the political and the mystical and the this and the that and the whatnot. So I don't know if that answers the question, but that is the answer that comes to me. <laughs> I love that answer. Well, to, to bring us full circle uh, back to, to Donald Trump. Yes. You, you have a section of the book called Pax Americana which is a play on Pax Romana, the 200 years of Roman peace that came with Augustus assuming the throne. Yes. But you really aren't contrasting the pox that America is inflicted and infected with and the peace that Rome achieved with the ascent of Augustus, but rather you're drawing parallels between where we are now with Trump and where Rome was with Augustus. You said that Trump for you is more a symptom of the disease. Yeah. And you've also suggested that perhaps this particular election, if the Roman parallel holds, isn't the pivotal election it might first seem to be. Um, so given that I'm hopefully going to air this in the day or two before the election, <laughs> right. and, and people will be listening to this with Trump even more on the brain than usual, Yes, right. Talk to us about Augustus and Trump sure. and how you see this election more in the relationship to the American trajectory yeah. or how you might imagine the trajectory of America going forward with this election being part of it. Thank you for that question. Um, so three biographies into the life of Augustus. I've spent a fair amount of time thinking about the Roman Republic and the fall of the Roman Republic. I'm no expert. My thoughts are improvisatory and impressionistic, and they might not stand. Uh, the, they might not bear the scrutiny of any, you know, moderately qualified Roman scholar, irrespective. I start this thought process thinking about Hegel, and I think about Hegel's proposition about Julius Caesar. His proposition about Julius Caesar was that the fundaments of the Roman Republic had already crumbled to the point that within the state there was a kind of tendency, uh, antithesis, and antithetic tendency versus the thesis of the Republic, the antithetic tendency towards centralized power, that the crumb, that the Republic the fundaments of the Republic had crumbled enough that the need for centralized power was beginning to arise. And that Caesar, in a sense, represented the expression of this within the Roman Empire. But the fundaments hadn't crumbled quite enough for there not to be a counterattack from the thetic as opposed to the antithetic movement. Brutus, the conspirators, the killing of Caesar for the sake of saving the Republic, which ultimately didn't save the Republic. It only served to undermine those fundaments even further and led to the figure who would actually embody these centralizing impulses within the Roman Republic, Augustus, who then led to 200 years of prosperity and stability. And so that this shift in the political order was a process, and it was one that was being expressed 
organically within the society. I think that I see some parallels. The parallels I see are the, you know, notwithstanding, let's, let's not even let's not even talk about the sort of obvious parallels, but the the rise of the aristocratic, the power of the aristocratic classes in Rome at the time, and the way in which power was increasingly in the hands of the few who were making policy based on money, based on the dispensation of the the state's money. The fundaments of our own republic have been under attack for a half century by the rise of a kind of unfettered individualism. Those who have increasingly making policy, I referred earlier to a kind of nascent or corporate totalitarian global order. I do think that the global order is substantially comprised of corporations whose decisions and needs are what drive national policy increasingly. And that we, the people, have no representation in that body politic. That body politic is entirely a private private enterprise. It has a corollary to the kind of aristocratic class that I was talking about earlier with the Roman Republic. They are making policy against their interests The social body is creating or perhaps offering the call for a need for a meaningful check against that. And that in a way, authoritarianism represents a dysfunctional version of centralized power that could be a check against that class, if you will. All of this is playing out in a kind of unconscious, perhaps it's playing out in a kind of unconscious way that's still inchoate, still finding its form. If the parallel holds and if the fundaments of the American Republic seem to be crumbling, and if what has happened over the last four years has done enough damage that rather than repair, the line of least resistance will be to finding an opportunity for centralizing power to operate as a meaningful check. Then the question is going to become about the military, because that was what the question was in Rome. Those who had the military were, as you say, those who controlled the monopoly of violence within the society. Those were the ones who ultimately could attain power, could ascend to power. The problem for Trump is that he doesn't have the military. If he had the military, this might be another conversation. And so what we might be looking at in 2024, 2028 is a run for power that is aligned with the military in some way. That means that when the tatters, when the tattered fraying cloths really start to break apart, the new political power, the newly enshrined political power will have the support of the monopoly on state violence. And this is why this question of violence is so important actually, because if the monopoly on state violence begins to break down, if we see widespread violence, we're going to start seeing the organic call for centralized power. Mm. Somebody has to reassemble the monopoly of violence in order to have a functional society. And that will become an obvious excuse slash justification 
for moving to a new political order. Now, all of this is very far-fetched and very far-seeing, perhaps totally, you know, imagine, imaginary. I have no idea. I just know what I'm interested in and what I begin to see. And I've been paying some attention to this. You know, it's part of the reason I was in Rome when I first started writing this book. And some of what you're talking, what we're talking about now is, is in the book, but not really in any obvious way. It's just part of the, it's part of the, the fertilizer that, that, that built the roots. So I, I, I hope that was a coherent explanation of what I was, what I've been seeing and what I've been getting at. It was. Tell us just briefly before we end, um, I've heard that you're now working, since we're talking about reality television and <laughs> reality television uh, president, um, that you're working on television now. Is I that am. true? I'm developing a TV show. And um, uh, yeah, and I, I hope to have more news soon, but I don't have news yet. Uh, so I'm, you know, I mean, I'm in the kind of middle, middle stage uh, moving toward uh, the actual making of the show. COVID has made everything uh, complicated. Yeah. But I, I hope to be able to speak about it soon. Well, I loved speaking with you over the last two hours, Ayad. Me too, David. Thank you so much. This is, this is one of the most engaging conversations of my life. <laughs> There's no question. Oh, wow. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's uh, talking today to the author Ayad Akhtar about his latest book, Homeland Elegies, a novel. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was not recorded at the studios of KBOO, but at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of Ayad Akhtar's work at ayadakhtar.com. Ayad has also added a reading from Yerzy Grotovsky's last writings from a piece called Performer to the Bonus Audio Archive. Joining bonus readings by writers Phil Metris and John Keane, Natalie Diaz and N.K. Jemison, Nikki Finney, Ted Chang, and many others. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the fall fundraising campaign to get between the covers on solid footing going into 2021. You can do so and find out all the benefits of becoming a listener supporter at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or, if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so via PayPal at tinhouse.com support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who keep this ship afloat. Elizabeth DeMeo, Elisa Ogie, Spencer Rukti in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Yashwina Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.